This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. I'd like for you to kind of read along with me as we go through the first 14 chapters of John chapter 6. About a little boy with a lunchbox today. Point number one. Let's get this point down, then we're going to start reading some scripture. Point number one in your notes is that true followers of Jesus begin as seekers. True followers begin as seekers. Let me uh, start reading verse number one. Read with me. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, uh, or Tiberias was another name for the Sea of Galilee. And a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Let's stop there. True followers begin as seekers. In the last 20 years, the word seekers has become a popular word amongst the evangelical church. And a lot of people have, you know, a lot of folks that think they know better than everybody else have poo-pooed the idea of seekers and and about the whole idea of churches being sensitive to seekers and so forth. But let, let me make a point that we need to consider when we talk about seekers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith and trust in him as your savior, you began as a seeker. That's who you were before you trusted Christ. You were seeking God, were you not? You were a seeker. So let's not get on, the, on, this, on, on some kind of a, a bandwagon that, that says, oh, this whole seeker thing. You know, we, we love seekers at Nags Head Church. We love to invite seekers to come and find out what, what, what God is doing here. They were seekers. This huge crowd, it says, was following him. But following him, not in the sense that they were his disciples. A lot of people think the word disciple means follower. It does not. It means learner. Now, the way they learned in those days was to follow. And just got, you know, we didn't have any schools and they didn't have any places to sit down and be taught. They traveled with Jesus. But the word following here in the Greek language doesn't mean they were following because they were devoted to him. That's not why they were following. They were following because John tells us they found his signs, his miracles that he was doing to be fascinating, to be entertaining. You know, cable was broken or something and they had nothing. Let's go watch Jesus. And so this huge crowd's following Jesus all over the countryside. And it's most likely that the multitude was larger in number for a couple of reasons. Not only was Jesus' ability to heal and the things that he was doing the word about that was spreading like wildfire and more people are coming to see, but they were also on their way to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. So lots of people are getting ready to travel and Jesus is going to head down there as well. When I was 15, I'm talking about seekers for a moment. When I was 15, I remember very well the evening my dad got a phone call. Now this is back in the days, you young people go home and ask your parents about this. Back in the days where most households had one telephone in the house, it's hardwired, and ours was up on the wall outside the kitchen door. And that's where the phone was, you know. There there was no phone of any, that was it. 
And the phone rang, and I remember Dad answering the phone, and I could tell it was a pretty serious conversation going on. Found out later, he's, Dad was in the Marine Corps at the time, and, and he's still in the Marine Corps. He's 81 years old. Dad was in the Marines active at the time, and, and uh, he's talking to whoever his superior was and telling him, your orders have come through. And I heard my dad say the word, I'm listening because I want to know, we're getting ready to move. We're, we're living in Northern Virginia. We've lived on the East Coast our whole lives. And I hear dad say the word California. And I got excited. I was a 15-year-old boy. And as soon as I heard that word California, you know, the East Coast girls are hip. <laughs> That's all I know. The East Coast girls are hip. I really dig those styles they were. I didn't know anything about Northern girls, had not been up there in the South my whole life, but California. And so that, that phrase was going through my head and every time it went through my head, the smile got bigger. I wish they all could be. I'm 15, all right? I was ready to move. A few weeks later, not long, a few weeks later, we were on the other side of the country in a place we had never been before, in a town where we had never been before, did not know a soul in Southern California. And one of the first things my parents did, parents, listen up, if you ever move, and some, some of you will move, one of the first things my parents did, and they were old school, but they did this, and I appreciate that. The first thing they did when we finally, we found the house, they bought the house, we moved into the house, they opened up the phone book. Again, parents, explain this to your kids. They opened up a phone book, and in the back of the phone book was this section, the pages were all yellow, and they found a church to go visit. They were going through, where's the church in this town? Boom, here's one. And we went and visited that church. Well, at that church that Sunday, I heard the announcement that Saturday night, our youth group is going to a youth rally at another church. We're going to load up on the bus at such and such a time, travel uh, probably half an hour or so toward Los Angeles or something like that and went to a went to a youth rally. And I said, well, you know, that's a good way to meet other kids and, and kind of get in, find out what's going on. So I want to go. So I show up at the church that Saturday evening. There's the big old school uh, church bus sitting out there. And, and I go in and it's when I got there, it was kind of early empty. So I didn't know anybody. So I went and found the seat. You know, the, now there's two seats on each side of the aisle in, in the buses. And I found the seat by the window about three rows back. And I sat there and, um, you know, I, I didn't, you have to realize that when I was 15 years old, you guys will relate to this, the men, and you relate to this. When I was 15 years old, I was very fascinated by girls. You guys know what I'm talking about? I just was fascinated by girls when I was 15 years old, but I was also extremely shy around them. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I was extremely shy around them. And at the same time, I also wanted, here's, here's just a matter of fact, biological fact. At the same time, one of the needs of a 15-year-old boy is to be around 15-year-old girls. You know, I, just, I knew that to be true. And, and God must have wanted me and my family to keep coming to this church. Because as I sat there in my seat alone, nobody sitting beside me, as the bus fills up with kids that were strangers to me, this cute girl named Debbie 
comes up the steps on the bus and she takes a couple steps and there I am sitting by myself. There's an empty seat and she looks at me and she says, can I sit here? And I went, uh, 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 yeah. Obviously, she wasn't as shy as me. I really don't think I said a word to her on the whole bus trip there and back. And I'm sure she thought, you know, what a goofus. And, and you know, and, and I'm thinking, what does a goofus like me say to a pretty girl? I had no idea. You know, gee, you smell good or something. I don't know. What do you say? She later told me, you know, we became friends. And she later told me, you know, I really thought you were strange. And... Uh, <laughs> And now we're Facebook friends, so we still are in contact with each other. But I can promise you this. After that experience, sitting on that bus next to that pretty girl, I wanted to be sure my parents knew this is God's will for us to be at this church. <laughs> I knew it. She wasn't the only one. No doubt there are people in churches today who are in those churches today not out of any great spiritual motive. Some are... Curious, perhaps, about Christianity. Some go to church only because it's a habit. It's what we do on Sunday. And others, you know, I think go to, to see and be seen and figure if they're seen at church, then that can't be bad for their reputation. Some attend maybe because they feel better or when they've been there, or they like the music. I, I know of men, married men, who attend church only because it makes their wives Happy, and you know the saying, happy wife. And all the men know that, happy life. Point here is this, first point in your notes, that when, before someone accepts Christ as Savior, it really doesn't matter why they want to be around him and his followers. That doesn't matter why. And as a church, we need to see that. We need to do whatever it takes to bring unconvinced the unconvinced into a place in their lives where they can be introduced to Jesus and always keep in mind that Jesus wants all of us, whether we're seekers or we're hardcore believers and wherever we are in between, he wants all of us to move from being unconvinced and seekers to becoming disciples, believers who become disciples who are fully devoted to him. Jesus looks at his crowd and he knows the only reason I've got this big crowd is because they like the things that I've been doing, the healings and turning the water into wine and, and so forth that they've seen. And, and they're coming for those reasons, not the best reasons. But yet Jesus saw here with this monstrous crowd, he saw an opportunity to meet their physical need. And their physical need at the moment was hunger. He wanted to meet that physical need so they would see one more sign that he was more than a sideshow. Meeting physical needs is a great way, I believe, to introduce others to Christ. Uh, one physical need that everybody has is hunger. I'm going to be, after we're done here today, it's going to be noon, a little after, I'm going to be hungry, all right? And so I'm going to say to my wife, let's go get some lunch because I have this physical need of, of hunger. We all have that. Um, and, and thankfully here in this church, we have some talented people who love to cook. And so we take that talent and the physical need of hunger and we feed our lifeguards once a month in the summertime. We bring, bring them here and they come on, have dinner with us. In the wintertime, we bring in the homeless of our community and they come and stay here in our building and we feed them three meals a day. 
Uh, we feed our public safety community on September the 11th. We do lots of things with food because everybody has a physical need of hunger, don't we? We all need to eat. But why do we do that? Just so we can give them a nice meal? No, we do that so that we might have an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Number two, true followers of Jesus have, an, have unanswered questions that will test their faith. True followers of Jesus will have unanswered questions that will test their faith. Look with me beginning at verse five. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Philip's one of the 12 disciples, Philip, where will we buy enough bread so that these people can eat? Philip, where, what store is going to have enough food for us to get, for us to buy and feed this crowd? He asked this to Philip, John says, to test him. For Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus already knew how he was going to handle this thing, but he's asking Philip, Philip, what do you think? How are we going to handle this? And Philip answered. Philip goes, come on. He says 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each one of them to have a little. 200, a denarii was one day's wage for the laborer in those days. So 200 days wages, that's more than six months paychecks. He said, that's not going to be enough to buy enough bread for this crowd. And the implication too is even if we could find a store that's got enough bread to feed this crowd, would, you know, impossible is what Philip said. One of his disciples, another one, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, said to Jesus, what, hey, Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But he comes back with a question to Jesus, but what are they for so many? Good question. Questions being asked. The purpose of those questions is to test his disciples. Now, usually we don't think of Jesus asking questions of us, do we? I mean, I, you know, Jesus comes and asks us, what do you think I should do, Rick? You know, he's, I don't think he's ever asked me that question, but he asked Philip that question. What do you think I should, how we should do this? And he doesn't, we don't think of him that way because we know he knows all the answers, but yet he asks Philip, he's God, Jesus is, he knows everything. Philip's been following Jesus for some time now, over a year. He ought to have a growing understanding of Jesus and his capabilities. He's seen him turn water into wine. He's seen him do all kinds of miracles of healing. But he still doesn't have, Philip doesn't have, he hasn't figured it all out yet. He doesn't have all the answers. And we today, here 2,000 years later, we have the luxury because we have, we can read the story and we know what happened at the end of the story. And we ought to say, we want to reach out to Philip if we could talk to Philip and say, Philip, dude, the answer the answer is, Lord, why don't you, why should we buy bread when you can create it? Why don't you just go ahead right now and make enough bread? You can do that, you know. See, Jesus was testing him. He wanted to show Philip, Philip, you still, even though you've been with me for a year now, you still have a lot to learn. And Philip didn't get a very good grade on this test because he was so, get this, he was so overwhelmed by the situation. But let's be honest, we're all kind of like Philip. Have you ever been overwhelmed by life? And by what you thought in your life 
was an impossible situation. Has that happened to you? Oh, sure it does. It happens to all of us. What do I do, God? Uh, you know, and there are some things that we just haven't figured out when it comes to Jesus and faith. And I, I'm, I'm always surprised in a sense when, when people will come approach me and they think, you know, Rick is a pastor, a man of God. Rick's got a seminary degree. I've seen it hanging on the wall in his office. He's got lots of schooling on God things. If anybody knows the answer to my dilemma, to what overwhelms me in my situation, it's probably Rick. And so people will come to me and ask me questions and, about life and different things. And the honest answer is, I don't know the answers to everything about faith and Jesus and the Bible. In fact, I'll just confess to you, there's more I don't know than what I do know. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I find out I, I don't know. I've got a lot to learn. I don't know why an innocent child can die of a terrible disease while at the same time, the most hateful, ruthless, immoral person can live to be 90 years old. I haven't figured that out. I don't know why there are droughts and floods and earthquakes and and pestilence and, and epidemic and, and all those. I, I don't know. I have lots of unanswered questions. Well, to help us learn the answers to some of those questions, God will give us tests. He doesn't do us, do these tests, give these tests to us to make us feel stupid, to make us feel inadequate. Here's why he tests us. One reason is he tests us to make us grow into maturity. He wants us to grow up, and so that requires testing. James chapter 1, verse 3 says, Because you know that these troubles test your faith, and this will give you patience. So these troubles come into my life, these overwhelming situations. Why are they God? Why me? God wants to say to us, look, read James 1, 3. It's because you need to grow up, and this is going to help you do that. Then we're also told in the Bible that we ought to test ourselves when it comes to matters of faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is really genuine. Test yourselves. If you cannot tell that Jesus Christ is among you, it means you failed the test. But here's the exciting thing about God's tests. God's tests are always open book. And by open book, I mean you've got this book the answers you're going to, if you get in here and dig, you're going to find a whole lot of answers to a whole lot of the situations that you are in. You just have to open it up and find them. Well, apparently, as Jesus is having this conversation with Philip and asks him this question, and Philip goes, there's no way we can buy enough bread. Andrew's listening in, and Andrew spots a boy in the crowd. He's looking out, he says, oh, he sees there's a boy over there with a lunchbox. And Andrew apparently goes and approaches this young man. And he says, hey, what you got for lunch? And the little boy opens his lunchbox and there's five loaves of bread, five biscuits, if you will, and, and a couple fish. A boy-sized lunch for a crowd of 5,000. By the way, this is the second time. I like Andrew. He's one of our favorite disciples. We don't know a whole lot about, about him, but we know this is the second time Andrew is found bringing somebody to Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42 was the first time we see him doing that. Now, Andrew really doesn't have the answer to the feeding dilemma, but he has an unanswered question himself. 
when Jesus says, and what did you find? I found a boy with a lunchbox, five loaves of bread, two fish. But what in the world, Jesus, can we do with that? How can that feed this huge crowd? But then Andrew also thinks, well, five loaves and two fish, that's better than nothing, isn't it? So we see another disciple's faith being tested. And the difference that we see in these two men, Philip and Andrew, the difference that we see in them is that Philip expressed no faith. No way. Can't be done. Can't get enough bread to feed this crowd. Might as well stop figuring out. Might as well send them home. We're done for the day. Andrew expressed a little faith. But we do have this boy's lunch. And from what we saw last week, if you were here last Sunday with the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda, the issue, and please get this, the issue is not how big your faith is. I hear people, oh, I just don't have big enough faith. I don't have strong enough. God doesn't say you got a big, huge faith. The issue is not how big is your faith, but that your faith, no matter how small or imperfect, is in Jesus because he's big enough. For, to overcome your tiny little faith. So that's what we have happening here. So let me ask you a question. Everybody ought to answer this question. What, what is the impossible situation staring at you right now or at your family? Or how about your church? Uh, a lot of us, a lot of us, if I ask that question, just, we just said, stand up and tell us what's the impossible situation. A lot of us, a good number of us would stand up and say it's finances. We're having a hard time making ends meet in our house and, and, and or I'm getting ready to go to school, get ready to go to college or something. And I don't know where the money's going to come from. I remember back when Nag said church, we were asking God for his direction in the building of a new multi-purpose facility. And some of you remember the little white church that was out in front here for many, many years. And we're talking about building a new building, that, the building that we sit in today, and we're talking about we need a, a million and a half dollars to build that building. And I think there are probably some of us in the church at the time that might have been like Philip and just simply said, a million and a half dollars, we don't even have 200 members in our church. Where are we going to get a million and a half dollars? Can't be done! Impossible! And then there were others, I think, who maybe were like Andrew and said, well, you know what? We looked and we said, here's how much money we have in the bank. Here's how much we've saved to, to do something with. And, and it, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't anywhere near a million and a half dollars. And a lot of people probably said, this is all we've got. What can we do with this? But here's the deal this morning. We all need to be like a boy with a lunchbox. We all need to say, you know, here's what I have. It may not be much, but here it is, Lord. I give it to you. Number three, true followers of Jesus learn that he can transform the insignificant into the incredible. Verse 10. All right, we've got five barley loaves and two fish, Andrew says. What can we do with that? That's not enough. And then Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, John tells us. So they sat down and the men numbered about 5,000. 5,000 men. The word men there means male persons, right? 5,000 men. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Wait, there were just two fish. Five little 
biscuits. When they were full, this crowd, he told his disciples, okay, guys, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Now, we can't see it in our English Bibles, but the words here tell us something important. First, the Greek word that's translated boy or lad here means very small boy. And the word for fish that's here means small fish. These weren't tuna that the kid showed up with, you know. These were more like sardines. And the bread is identified by John. John tells us they were barley loaves. Barley was a dry and coarse grain. And if you made bread out of it, it was dry and coarse. It wasn't very appetizing because barley was grain that was fed to animals and was considered inferior for bread. For human consumption? No, not really, but it's what poor people had. So Jesus has the people sit down and Here's something else that a little digging tells us. It says he it says the word uses the word people there. These people. People means just that, people, men, women, boys, girls. But then when it says men sat down, the word men is literally male adults. Five thousand men, but there were people there. You don't have to use your imagination. If there's five thousand men, there's probably an equal number of women. And if there's 5,000 men and 5,000 women, there's probably also some children along as well. So there may have been 15,000 or more people that are there that day. We don't know. But when we stop and think about it, now the number's gone from 5,000 to 15,000. That makes that little boy's lunch even smaller, doesn't it? Here's a little boy with a little lunch. But here's a little boy with a little lunch that was willing to give it to Jesus. Kind of get that there. Little boy, little lunch, willing to give it to Jesus. If this boy, if we're a Baptist church here, for those of you who are guests, we're a Baptist church. And if this little boy had been a good Baptist, and Philip said, or Andrew said, what you got for lunch? I got five loaves and two fish. Are you willing to give it to Jesus? If he was a Baptist boy, he would have said, I'll give him a tenth. (laughs) He gives it all to the Lord. He says, it's all yours. You can have everything that I have. His attitude was, all that I have, even though it isn't much, is yours. Now, would you ask yourself this question right now? Just to yourself, ask this question. What's in my lunchbox? What's in my lunchbox? What gifts and talents and abilities and possessions are in my hands today? One of the freeing facts of the Christian life is when we come to the place where we say to God, all I have is yours. On more than one occasion, I've personally said to God, and and I have said this many times, God, all I have is yours. And then there's been times in my life where I've said, okay, Lord, we need to have a conversation. I need to let you know, please understand your car is broken down right now. Your car needs a new set of tires because all I have is yours, God. It's, it's yours. But when I get, get it that all my possessions really belong to God and I am simply his manager over what he's entrusted 
me with, it frees me to trust him then to meet all my needs. And that's exactly what he promised, isn't it? Read Philippians 4.19. Read that with me aloud. It's up on the screen. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? God says, hey, I'm good for some of the stuff you need. Is that what he said? No, he said, thank you. He said, all. I'm good for all your needs by Christ Jesus. Again, too often we not only see our faith as too small, but we see what we have to give to God as too small as well. Yeah, but I just have a little bit, and God's not interested in what I have. I appreciate our discovering my ministry class, and I think it's great because it teaches us that God's gifted each one of us so that we can be used by him. And that, listen, listen to me, Christian, no one in God's family has insignificant talents and abilities. No one. To us, they may seem small, but once they're placed in Jesus' hands, they become Great. So Jesus takes the loaves and he takes the bread and it says he he thanks God for the meal and the 12 disciples begin passing it out. And how this unfolded, we're really not given the details. We can use our imagination, but they start passing out what Jesus is blessed. And instead of it diminishing, decreasing in, in quantity, it explodes all over the place in quantity. And they've got more food than they know what to do with. And suddenly this crowd of thousands has an all-you-can-eat fish and bread buffet. And it says they were filled when they were all full. And there were leftovers. And John points out, I, I find this, I love this, this detail. John says, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. Where do you say? It doesn't say, but where do, you, where do you think those 12 baskets went? I think Jesus said, hey guys, come here. You 12, come here. Couldn't figure it out. Didn't know where it was going. But here's, each of you gets a basket now to eat. You're going to have more than you can handle to eat. And my guess is each of the disciples then had their dinner. And I really, really hope, don't miss this. I really hope they shared their dinner with Jesus. Lord, are you hungry? Here, we got, you can have some of mine. One more thing this morning uh, before we finish up. <clears throat> As a result of an impossible situation, thousands of people, nowhere to buy the food, no money to buy the food, little boy with a little lunch. An impossible situation and an insignificant boy. He wasn't a leader in the, in the town, in the, in the county, in the area. He wasn't the guy with deep pockets. He wasn't the guy that could pull out his credit card and said, you guys run down to Food Lion and just take everything off the shelves. He was just a little boy that nobody would have otherwise noticed. But the reason he was noticed was why? Because he had a lunchbox. That's why he was noticed. An insignificant boy, an impossible situation, this little boy with his little lunch placed it into Jesus' control, and because of that, God changes the hearts of the crowd. Because of what that little boy offered to Jesus. God did something really big. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign, the miracle, what happened? They all got fed. <laughs> and when they saw that, what he had done, they said, this, talking about Jesus, really is the prophet, capital P, this is the prophet who has come, was to come into the world. These Jewish people, all of a sudden, many of them said, I get it. 
What did they get? They got, and we don't know that they all understood this, but they understood Jesus isn't just free entertainment. We don't know how many, but some of them believed he was the prophet, a Jewish way to say the promised one, the Messiah. And they were changed. You know why they were changed? Because Jesus is all about change. That's what he's about in their lives. They started out, remember we began a few minutes ago, they started out as seekers, did they not? Seeking entertainment, seeking whatever they might see that day. They started out as seekers. They wound up, now many of them, as believers. Let me ask you a question. What's in your lunchbox? Is it possible that Jesus wants you to trust in him with your life and your family, your marriage, your home, your job? Is it possible he wants you to trust him with everything? But please hear me, as long as it stays in your hands, as long as it stays in your hands, it never gets into Jesus' hands and it stays small and insignificant. Maybe you came in here like today like Philip or like Andrew. And maybe today the test for you is how you respond to this message, to this story. Wouldn't you rather see the incredible in your life instead of staring at the impossible? Wouldn't you? I would. Today's the day, perhaps for you, that God wants you to move from being a believer to being a fully devoted disciple. And if you're a seeker here today, let me say to you, would you allow Jesus to transform you into a believer who can begin then to follow him? Let's pray. Father, these chairs are filled with little boys and little girls, and we all have lunchboxes because you've all given us abilities and talents and gifts. And we sometimes think they don't mean much, they don't matter much, they don't amount to much, but in your hands, they can change lives. I pray that, Father, we would see that life is not just about me, but it's about those around me and how you can use me to serve and to bless and to see you impact for life change. That's why we're here. Why you placed us here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church.